Dr. Sean Gibbons is an associate professor at the Institute for Systems Biology. Sean's not just interested in your gut health, he's interested in how your microbes change from the moment you're born right through to the latter years of your life. Maybe if we fundamentally understand how our microbes change, maybe one day we can understand why we age and even influence that process. It's pretty exciting stuff. Sean, great to have you on the show. Um, there's no one really better equipped, I think, to kind of kick things off. Um, the microbiome is abstract in people's mind. It's become a bit of a kind of mythical thing. I thought it might be quite good just to start with helping people understand, like, what is the microbiome? Great. Thanks. Thanks, Ollie. And, and thanks for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, the microbiome, uh, we're, we don't really have a choice about, about the matter, right? We're, we're, we're in this microbial world that's been around for about 4 billion years. And multicellular organisms had, have, had to evolve in that world. And we've only been around for a few hundred million years. Um, and so it's, you know, you either beat them or you join them. They either eat you or, or you somehow cooperate with them. And over time, We've, uh, we've developed a lot of mechanisms to enable uh, kind of uh, detente between these microbes and our bodies. And in some cases, they even uh, provide beneficial services to us. And so what are they? They're bacteria, viruses, fungi, uh, archaea, uh, various single-celled organisms that coat our entire bodies. You can think of our body as a donut, topologically speaking. Right, it's all one continuous surface down through our gastrointestinal tract to our skin. It's all it's all one surface, and on that outside surface, uh, you just have microbes everywhere. Um, there's about as many microbial cells in, a, in and on our bodies <clears throat> as we have human cells, um, and there's about a hundred times the genetic capacity in our microbiome than in our own genomes. Millions of genes in the microbiome versus you know twenty three thousand or so in our genome. So uh, yeah, just a, just a really um, dense ecosystem, complicated, hundreds of species, thousands of strains, uh, and the vast majority of the biomass of these organisms uh, is is pent up in our colon, essentially in our in our lower GI. And so when we think about, um, I think when we think about it like that, it helps us understand a little bit more about how perhaps the food we eat or what we even put on our skin could have quite a dramatic influence on the state of that microbiome, essentially. Yeah, you know, we think of it a little bit now as, as an organ of, of the body, but it's a strange type of organ. It's, it's self-assembled, right? It, you're born sterile out of the womb and you're exposed to the microbes in the environment. Your, your mom is kind of your, your sourdough starter culture, if you will. So you get a lot of microbes from her, but you also get it from touching the dog's nose or playing in the grass. <clears throat> and even identical twins have completely different microbiomes. You know, they're almost as different from one another as two strangers. So despite the fact that they have the same genome, their microbiomes are very different. And we know that those differences across people in their microbiota affect how they respond to exposures to their environments, right? Like what they eat, what drugs they take, what um, lotions they use, you know, the, the response of the human host to those, those interventions is affected by the ecological composition and the functional capacity of, of our microbiota, of the microbiome. 
And a great example of that, we were just chatting off air about how you know Dr. Jack Gilbert, who was on the podcast previously. And one of the things that we spoke about was the trial that was done with the Amish communities and, and, the, and the low propensity for, for asthma there. And that's a great example, right, of early exposure to dust, to dirt, and, and, and therefore uh, having a lower kind of reactivity to the environment around you as you kind of grow up, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, that, that works really interesting in, in the interface between our microbes and the development of our immune systems. It's, it's become clear that unless we're properly exposed to the right types of microbial antigens, which are like proteins and small molecules that the microbes produce, in the absence of those exposures, we get sick later in life. We can have allergies, asthma, overactive immune systems because of, of that lack of exposure. I'm interested before we get into it, we're going to talk a lot about the, what you're working on, why you're working on it. Um, but I'm interested um, uh, I'm interested to know the thing, like one thing that you're most excited about as far as the kind of work you're doing and one thing that worries you the most in the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's a great question. Like, maybe the one that worries me the most I'll start with, which is, you know, how important is the microbiome? Right? It's not a panacea. It's not going to solve every problem. And indeed, we, if we look at animals, you know, some animals don't need their microbiomes. Some animals would die tomorrow if they didn't have their microbiomes. A cow, in order to digest its diet, it can't break down cellulose. So if it lost its microbes, it would be dead. Um, but a caterpillar... Not so much. They can survive just fine, sterile. Um, and humans are somewhere in the middle. Um, and we know this from work in mice largely, which are kind of omnivores like we are. And if you grow them sterilely, they look weird. They look wonky. Their organs are, are kind of misshapen and their immune systems are poorly adapted to, to exposure to pathogens. But they're not dead. <laughs> you know, they can survive. Uh, and so how much of our health and well-being is truly contingent upon the microbiome and how much um, is not. And I think that there's a lot of, the microbiome is an exquisite sensor for environmental differences. Uh, and so there's a lot of ecological variation in the microbiome depending on what we eat and what we're exposed to. But how much of that variability is actually resonant with health and, and relevant to health and how much of it is not. Uh, and I think that's that's the work of the field right now is to kind of dissect that apart. So that's the worry, you know, how much is smoke? Yeah. Okay. So this idea that actually we could be we could be on to something that we think is going to change the entire like way that we treat people, the the medicinal model, and actually it just turns out to be, you know, and and actually on the percentage of that worry, what do you think? You know, where do you think that is? Yeah, there's a lot of correlation and not all of it is causation. And so, you know, but, but, but the fact is the microbiome, if you look at the ecological composition of the microbiome across health and disease states, pick a disease, any disease, and there are differences. If you look at their micro microbiomes of people with asthma or with, with uh, you know, arthritis or cancer, their microbes vary between health and disease. Um, and even if only 1% or 10% or of those associations end up being causal contributions to the etiology of disease, 
well, you've, you've already revolutionized medicine, right? It, I, think, I think the microbiome is still a big deal because um, you're still going to have hundreds of situations in which, in which it affects human health. But a lot of it is also kind of noise, and so we need to kind of parse those apart. Yeah, it's the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. We were ch- I was chatting with uh, Dr. Tarina Shankar Ghosh. I don't know if you've come across him, um, mm-hmm. but he was, um, he was talking about a study where they'd um, noticed... Uh, they've been comparing essentially people with uh, uh, the propensity of people to have some kind of chronic inflammatory disease and how the the microbiomes of people that lived in urban areas compared to people that lived in rural areas had a much, much higher propensity of developing, you know, something like irritable bowel disease than somebody that lived in a kind of rural area. And that it's when you hear things like that, that's when you start for me anyway. I, you start to think that can't just be unless we're missing something. There could be a completely different reason powering that, but totally. that's pretty. That's pretty wild. <clears throat> it is, and 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 you know, the, I guess the trick is figuring out the exact mechanism by which that phenomenon arises, and if 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 there's a way to intervene upon it, and and actually you know, change those outcomes. And that's, that's the question uh, for a lot of different diseases. And, and that's what we're working really hard to figure out. And so that brings me to the, what I feel optimistic about, or what I'm excited about, which is that, you know, we spent a long time, the last 15 years, sequencing a bunch of microbiomes, and just looking at comparing sick people to healthy people, and we see a ton of associations, of course. We see all these taxa that are more abundant here, less abundant there. Um, and that's just ecological variation. But what, is it, what does it mean? You know, get that, getting down to brass tacks, like what does that ecological variation actually mean for the physiology of the human host or for the disease state of the human host? Is it actually contributing to the etiology of disease or is it just kind of correlated with changes that are happening in the body? Um, and so at this point right now in the field, you're seeing a much wider application of, you know, culturing organisms in addition to sequencing, of clinical trials, of intervention studies, better uh, preclinical models of disease in animals, uh, where we're starting to build a sort of system scale understanding of, of, of the microbiome and being able to map that variation in ecological space into the sort of functional consequences of that variation. And then how that in turn affects phenotypes, human phenotypes. Um, so I think that's where it's really exciting right now is we've, we're moving beyond the natural history, right? Like Alexander von Humboldt going to South America and like looking at what, my, what, what organisms are at different elevations on a mountain. We've done that for the microbiome. The, Dar- the Darwin and the Beagle exploration has been done. And now we're at the next phase of, of kind of getting down to brass tacks. And essentially there, what, what you're saying in layman's terms is trying to work out, is it the chicken or is it the egg, right? Like, what, why is, you know, just because something is changing, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the reason that the disease is occurring. This is the next stage now to really, really kind of understand that. And, and, and if, let's say, hypothetically, we come out of this and we say, no, we can really see these changes in the microbiome are dramatically increasing, let's say, propensity for disease, propensity for obesity, propensity for cognitive decline, all of these kind of things. When we think 
into the future about how we treat these things, that's where it brings up this kind of bugs versus drugs. Let's say we see these really, really strong links. Is that, is that going to then potentially change the way that we're going to treat or prevent these diseases in the future? Yes. <laughs> and again, I don't know how many diseases, right? Like maybe it's only 10% of the things where we see associations where we, you can actually intervene through the microbiome to change the course of the disease. Microbiome-mediated interventions. Um, uh, you know, how many of these will work? It's still to be determined. But like you mentioned, bugs as drugs, this is obviously a field that's gained a lot of traction in, in recent years. There's a lot of companies, you know, some big companies, especially on the East Coast right now, who have clinical trials for um, sort of fecal transplant um, derivative material that have been applied to people for recurrent C. diff infections, and those trials have been successful, and they've actually achieved um, approval for those treatments by the FDA in the United States. So those will become, you know, fecal transplants are now FDA-approved, essentially, interventions for treating patients for the first time. Um, and then there no. are other companies that are working on cocktails of bugs as alternatives to fecal transplants that um, that are making their way through trials. And, and a recent one that the company Vedanta has developed got had a successful phase two, and it's now fast-tracked for approval. So I think a lot of these bugs as drugs interventions are going to start flowering because uh, venture capital is going to be going to start flowing into this space now that we've seen the first approvals through the regulatory bodies. Yeah, and and so for for people that don't understand, so so FMT fecal microbiome transplants, which is basically in its rawest form, taking a healthy donor's stool and transplanting it into into the the patient that is sick, um, C difficile. Um, what is quite unusual about this is usually we're miles behind America, but actually right now in the UK, the NHS are using. Uh, fecal microbiome transplants to treat C. diff. It's got a much higher effective rate of uh, uh, of success than antibiotics, um, and it doesn't have doesn't seem to have the relapse rates that antibiotics um, seems to have. My impression of that, Sean, is uh, FMT for C. diff is like the is like the bazooka. It's like it's it's not very refined. It's just like let's fire the big shot. Um, and I'm sure like we're, what, what essentially that is doing is really shifting the microbiome in those, in, the, in those patients. And I'm assuming that actually right now we don't fully understand the implications of that dramatic shift in like you're changing that person's microbiome. Yeah, it's a hammer. Right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a major intervention on your microbiome. You're giving antibiotics, and then you're taking health healthy poop from a from a healthy person, and in, in giving an enema to a sick person, and, and and trying to cure a disease. But it is the first big win, right, of of causal contribution of microbiome engineering to curing a disease. Fecal transplants are amazingly effective, right? So much more effective than prior treatments. There were people who were dying of these infections. You know, I think in the U.S. we had, I don't know, something like uh, 15,000 a year, something like some large number of people were dying every year. And now we can treat it. We can treat these incurable recurrent infections. Um, but, but like you say, yes, it's it's a very, it's like a bazooka. You're, you're, you're shooting an entire microbiome into someone else's gut and kind of rebooting their entire ecosystem from scratch. 
Uh, and that works very well in the case of enteric pathogens like C. diff. Um, however, it, we don't quite understand the, the exact mechanisms by which FMTs work. We just know that they work. And that's led to problems for translating these kinds of therapies beyond um, C. diff, because if you try inflammatory bowel disease or other types of gut disorders and, and apply fecal transplants in those scenarios, the efficacy rates are much lower. In fact, for inflammatory bowel disease, there appear to be super poopers, right? There's these studies that show certain donors have a much greater effect than others, and yet we don't know why. We don't have a mechanistic understanding of why. And then the final point on this, regulatory bodies are very queasy about FMTs because you're not only transmitting the good guys in the gut, many of us carry opportunistic pathogens in our microbiomes. And they're kept at bay because we have a healthy commensal bacterial community that, that suppresses the pathogenic activity of these organisms. But if you suddenly take that microbiome and put it into someone who just had a you know, bone marrow transplant and their immune system's wiped out, they're very vulnerable to these potential pathogens being transmitted via these fecal transplants. So the next phase of fecal transplant is to sort of find the exact cocktail of organisms that can be reproducibly manufactured and you can exclude all the pathobionts and, and yeah. opportunistic pathogens and just give that as an intervention. And that's that. those things are starting to come up now. I'm assuming one of the worries as well is, is that if there are kind of even vague theories at the moment around the idea that uh, uh, hereditary diseases, long-term uh, illnesses could be connected to our microbiome, there could be things passing in those fecal microbiome transplants that we you don't see instant consequences to, but potentially, cause, because I, I'm sure the more that you see now around studies, particularly studies that have been done on mice, about the things that can be carried backwards and forwards between them, there, there must be a worry around that with the, with the FMT treatments as well. There is, and a, and a great example of that is there's, there's lots of documented cases at this point. It's still slightly controversial, but lots of documented cases that depression symptoms can be transferred via fecal transplant. And that's, that's poorly understood. And so there's all these collateral effects that can happen with, with these big bazooka-type interventions. And so having more of a scalpel and being able to give a, a targeted intervention is, is the next phase and probably a better way to do things. Do you see, I mean, <laughs> I, I think sometimes I can be at risk of, of, of getting a bit kind of conceptual with it, but do you sort of see a time in our lifetimes where rather than somebody, you know, signing up to Weight Watchers, they're going to be on a postbiotic, probiotic protocol specifically for losing weight, for example? Yes. Uh, oh, definitely. Uh, one of our papers from a couple of years ago, <clears throat> we actually looked at this question. There was a, a lifestyle intervention program uh, where a, lo a large, large number of people were coached to eat better and exercise more. And we found that um, a subset of them lost a ton of weight. They, they lost more than 10% of their body weight in six months. And then another subset of them lost like zero weight. There was no change in their BMI. 
And if we looked at their microbiomes, you know, we looked at a lot of stuff. We looked at their blood metabolomes. We looked at the proteins in their blood. We looked at their genomes and their diets. None of that explained the variation. Uh, but if we looked at the gut, we thought we suddenly saw, you know, this emergent picture where those people who had a hard time losing weight, um, they had specific types of genes enriched in their microbiomes. So genes like amylase genes that are that are good at degrading starch. Those who had enrichment for these types of genes, they had a harder time losing weight. And we saw that people who had an easier time losing weight, um, the growth rates of the ferment, fermentative organisms, the, the sort of um, gram-negative, which are a, a subtype of bacteria that, that are obligate anaerobes that ferment fiber, these organisms were growing faster in the guts of people who had an easier time losing weight. And so those organisms make short-chain fatty acids. And there's a lot of research showing that these, these molecules are like um, endocrine single, single signaling molecules. They can affect our insulin resistance levels and all these other things. And, and they seem to have a positive, like butyrate, for example, or propionate, a positive effect on our ability to control glucose and our ability to, say, lose weight and things like this. And so, yeah, I, I do think that that will be the future. It's so interesting, isn't it? You know, you can see a family walking down the street and, and it, it, it's, it's, you know, fairly often you can see, uh, uh, say, a family and say the mother and the father are both overweight and you look at the children and there's also obesity in the children. And your initial reaction to that can be like they probably just feed the kids a bad diet. Right. It's just, you know, they're, they're all they're all overeating or they're eating. But how interesting to think actually no well yes possibly but also the microbiome that has been per passed on from the sourdough starter mother right down to that child can also influence the ability for that child to gain weight totally it's, it's not just your behavior it's not just your genome it's also your microbes and your sort of delta hand at birth. There's, there's a really cool set of studies out of Denmark where they, um, they found a, an, an association where there's these two groups of bacteria, Bacteroides and Prevotella, and they're sort of in the same family of, of well, I guess, class of, of uh, bacteria. And they seem to inhabit this, a similar niche in the human gut, so you only really see one or the other in an individual person. You're either high Bacteroides or you're high Prevotella, and never a mix of the two, really. And if you partition people by that designation, people who are high Prevotella or high Bacteroides, and you feed them the exact same high-fiber diet, the Prevotella people, they lose a ton more weight than the Bacteroides people. And it's the only difference between these people is this this, this flip between Prevotella and Bacteroides. The, the question that's going to be on everyone's minds listening to this right now is what what can I do to promote Prevotella in my... Like, are there <laughs> lifestyles and dietary things that people can do to, like, promote those bacteria or do we not have control over that? That's a very interesting... Uh, and, and long, long rabbit hole to go down. I don't think I'll drag everyone into it right now, but Prevotella is an interesting bug. It's, it's definitely enriched in people who have high plant-based diets. Like if you looked at India, for example, most people would be high Prevotella. If you look in the US or Europe, most people are high Bacteroides. Um, and if you fecal transplant high Prevotella donors into Bacteroides recipients, you tend to see you can flip it. So if you try to fecal transplant someone with high Prevotella, into a donor that has high bacteroides, you, you can convert the high bacteroides into high prevotella. 
there's a there's a paper out of New Zealand that shows this pretty robustly. So, yeah, it seems I've just like got you... this image. <laughs> I've just got this image now of like somebody really really sick, C diff. The antibiotics haven't worked, and they come to do the fecal transplant, and they're <laughs> they're going to be saying. Um, can you just check if it's high pravatella? Because I do want to survive, but I also wouldn't mind losing a few pounds. Totally. Although with the caveat that it seems like pravatella is like an effect amplifier on a bad diet and a good diet. So people who eat like a, a Western diet, they actually have the negative effects of that diet more strongly if they're high pravatella. Right? So it's interesting. It's not necessarily always good. Yeah, that is really interesting. I mean, we talk about these FMT uh, pills, potentially. Um, I mean, kind of bringing things back to the kind of present day, there seems to be a lot of uh, or more interest in postbiotics. This is something that seems to have like exploded onto the scene in recent years. I think the awareness around uh, prebio- uh, uh, probiotics is, is big. More so in the last few years, people are starting to understand prebiotics, the idea of feeding their microbiome. Um, should we be excited around postbiotics? And, and, and what is that going to mean? You know, what, what, why are they so much more exciting than probiotics? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right. So just to define it a little bit, postbiotics are, of course, the the molecules that are produced by the bacteria. And so, you know, it's, you know, why you you don't necessarily need to to add the microbe. You could just add the metabolite they're producing to have some sort of effect. And that seems like an easier task, right, for like a drug development company just to just to manufacture the molecule instead of having to go through the middleman, essentially. So that's postbiotics. And I think there's a lot of promise there. <clears throat> there's a lot of um, development in that space right now with a lot with companies that are developing these things, these interventions. Um, and I and I think there's it's it's going to be it's going to be great. The only um, caveat is that there's some complexity to the production of certain kinds of molecules. <clears throat> Their spatial production in the gut, you know, are they produced kind of near the the epithelium or in the lumen? You know, what concentrations are they produced at? What is the rate of production? And some of that is hard to control in a pill if you're just giving a chemical in a pill. Whereas if a microbe is living in a certain niche in the gut mm. and producing a metabolite at a certain rate, that, that those dynamics might actually be important for the delivery of that metabolite. And you know, an example of that is short-chain fatty acids. <clears throat> it's been known for a long time that if you give someone a butyrate enema, um, you can reduce inflammation and you can alleviate symptoms of, for example, inflammatory bowel disease with with that type of a treatment. But I believe in the past, it hasn't been a well-tolerated treatment because it's super stinky. You know, you're going to smell like a sewer for hours after you you have this uh, sort of intervention, whereas the microbes in your gut are producing it all the time. Sorry, just to explain that to people, like the idea of actually this is 
being like inserted basically like rectally and pumped into you. So it's a pretty like, you know, it, it's a bit more complicated than just popping a pill. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Not, yeah, definitely kind of more invasive, isn't it? For some, for some applications, postbiotics are going to be great. For some applications, prebiotics and probiotics are going to be great. And, and for other applications, simple dietary modulation is going to be effective. Um, and, you know, diet, diet is medicine, right? That Hippocrates said that a long time ago. Um, but we didn't really understand how to, how to do the mapping between, you know, if you feed in this molecule, this bug in your gut is going to essentially produce a drug. It's a, it's, a fact, it's a small molecule that has a similar effect to a drug, and you can turn up and turn down that drug by eating, you know, peaches or, you know, a banana. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's important as well. I think diet's a really interesting one because it's, it's, it's almost in some ways become a little bit like a, a religion uh, for so many people. You know, uh, certain subgroups... Uh, you know, have a belief system around a particular diet, they'll defend it at, at all costs. Uh, that can often lead, even when there is evidence to counter that diet into like just absolute, if anything, it ramps it up even more, it kind of reinforces it. And I'm interested from from your perspective, Sean, um, you know, uh, we're seeing a rise in uh, uh, vegetarianism has been around for quite a long time, certainly veganism. Now, uh, keto, paleo, meat-only diets. And the interesting thing around these kind of... Uh, the, these very niche diets that are kind of coming through is that people are having experiences with their health which didn't seem to occur with a vegetarian diet. So, for example, people with... Uh, you know, and this is real anecdotal stuff, right? But people that have had, you know, maybe severe skin conditions, chronic fatigue, uh, things like this, they transition over to a to a to a meat only diet, and they're saying that you know their symptoms are going completely into remission, their energy levels are going up. Um, I'm really interested in when you see these stories, how you interpret that. Yeah, it's. <clears throat> it's it's hard because there's the it's such anecdotal evidence for a lot of this stuff. Um, there, there's really good quantitative nutritional studies on diets, and if you look at that literature, what falls out is the Mediterranean diet is really good for you, no matter who you are. <clears throat> so eating more fish, eating more veggies, uh, generally speaking, uh, and less you know red meat and and dairy and all of this stuff seems to be good for the average human being. Um, so I think we can kind of block that away in the in the treasure chest of human knowledge and just say, like, if you just tell someone to eat a Mediterranean diet, um, you're, you're, they're probably going to do pretty well. There's a lot of caveats there. So, for example, you know, if, if I told someone in, like, Alabama to eat a Mediterranean diet and I give them an artichoke, they're like, what the heck is this? What am I going to do with this? Right? There's, there's, cult, <laughs> there's cultural issues with translating these diets. Yeah. Like, we probably should create diets that are culturally appropriate or culturally understandable to people. Um, but, okay, apart from that, it is true that if you feed a bunch of people with Mediterranean diet, some people are stronger responders and some people are more non-responders to that intervention. Maybe they don't do quite as well on that diet. There's great work out of the Weissman Institute on this where they show that blood glucose responses are very personalized. And people can eat, you know, different things. Like two people eat ice cream and one person has a really big glucose spike and the other person doesn't. 
Um, and so perhaps diet should be bespoke. Perhaps it should be customized to each of us. And that's a really hard problem and it sounds expensive and it sounds difficult. Um, and so the truth sort of lies in the middle. I think you can get 70% of the way there with just a Mediterranean diet. And then the, the rest is sort of customization. <clears throat> and what that's going to require are, is like artificial intelligence type tools. Our lab is working on this. For example, we're, we're building um, community scale metabolic models of the gut microbiome where you can feed in dietary inputs and predict outputs. And what we can see in the model is that if you feed 20 people a banana, different chemicals come out their butts for sure. <laughs> and if we do this experimentally, like we, we, we run these experiments we're calling poop soup experiments, where we take poop from individuals, we take it into our anaerobic chamber, essentially a kind of external colon, and we homogenize that stool in liquid, so we make it kind of soupy. We put it into these little 96-well plates, and in each well we can add a different intervention. We could add a dietary fiber or a dietary protein or, or what have you, incubate for a period of time, and look at the metabolites that are changing in abundance throughout this incubation period. And so for a given dietary fiber, like inulin, for example, which is the fiber in a banana, if you feed that to, to 20 different people, we can measure the quantitative differences in short-chain fatty acid production and all these other molecules that are produced um, and try to build either machine learning models or mechanistic models that are able to predict for an individual how they specifically will respond to a specific food. That's sort of sci-fi right now, right? It, the science mm -hmm. is still being done, but I think that is also part of the future of nutrition is this precision approach that's enabled by AI, essentially. And so so what, what you're saying there is eventually uh, somebody would be able to understand the right specific diet for them, not just um, like what they like to eat, but essentially how their microbiome will respond to those foods, perhaps if they're at risk of any other. Con so for example, in the case, somebody might get it through and say, look, you need to be super low on red meat here. You've got a high risk of colon disease. These microbes are connected to that. So we suggest you remove red meat for the diet. And for other people, they may say, hey, knock yourself out like this. Like you, that, this particular microbiome makeup means that red meat's great and you just need to avoid dairy because you've got a propensity to be more atopic or whatever. So, but how will people be required to do a stool sample in the future in order to be able to get that data in return? Or is there a, a, a smarter way that we're going to be able to do it or, or an easier way? Oh yeah, I want everyone to give stool samples. I want poop from every every human being on earth. Right? I think everybody should get their genome sequenced at birth and everyone should give me their poop. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm actually surprised that people are more willing to give blood than they are to give poop. You know, blood is yes. a needle in your arm. Poop yeah. is easy, you just poop. Yeah. Um, but well, yes. the Brits especially, it's, far, it's just far too much for us to, <laughs> to, to talk about. We've got to shift the culture there. But yeah, I think that I think that is the future. You know, part of this <clears throat> precision approach too is like, it's really hard to change people's habits. You tell some sixty-year-old man to suddenly go from their diet to like a Mediterranean diet, and what are the chances that they're actually going to do that? Right, it's pretty low. Mm -hmm. But if you have a, a model that can sort of predict, you know, what is the minimally invasive intervention that I can put on top of their existing diet that will give them the maximal benefit? That's the kind of like the, the most um, tolerated 
dietary intervention could also be designed by these types of, of AI systems. So I think that's, yeah. that's what that, that'll make a huge difference. Yeah. And also, I guess it's the idea as well as like, even if you get the data back to say, um, look, this person's chance of colon cancer is, is very, very high risk, then it gives you the opportunity to do interventions that maybe aren't even necessary, necessarily dietary. So for example, like I, 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 I remember reading a study ages ago around the idea of people that take aspirin every single day uh, were, a, were far less likely to, to develop colon cancer. So actually, you know, what healthcare systems want is giving, giving a prescription of aspirin every single day is much cheaper than running chemotherapy for lots of people with bowel cancer, right? They're, this is all about kind of a preventative. So it's interesting to think about actually these stool tests that could be available to people to give them precision things might not just be around the diet. It may even mean that there are other areas that you can help people make those changes right. because you're right. It is so difficult to get people to make dietary changes. Yeah, it's easier to get them to eat, have a pill. <clears throat> and, yeah. you know, one thing that these types of models can also predict is how efficiently does your microbiome convert a given type of dietary fiber into short-chain fatty acids. And for a lot of fibers, you can buy them in pill form. You could take, you know, dextrin or, you know, inulin or oligofructose as a pill, uh, and maybe mm. you get a personalized mixture of these types of fibers uh, for an individual that, that would be an easy intervention. You just put it, you pop a pill twice a day and that's it. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder, you know, uh, it was actually an interesting conversation that I had with uh, Torini recently when we were talking about a study around um, uh, centurions, you know, people that had lived, you know, uh, studying the microbiomes of people that had lived past the age of a of a hundred um and and for me that was fascinating because it was kind of the first time that i ever really contemplated the idea of the microbiome impacting the way that you age and even potentially the age that you may well live to is this an area that excites you and 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 and, and where are we at with that what is the thought around it at the moment yeah, so <clears throat> I feel like a newcomer to this this field, aging in the microbiome. But you know, this last couple of years, we published a paper in this space <clears throat> because we had access to some data sets where we had a lot of data on on these aging populations paired with microbiomes. And reading the literature, <clears throat> there was some contradictions that were out there, right? So there were there were a set of studies um, that were done in this cohort called ElderMet, which is I think a European cohort. And those people were older, they were largely living in assisted living facilities. <clears throat> so they, they were kind of not the healthiest of older people. They weren't community dwelling. They were no longer independently living on their own. They were sort of in these, these hospital-like settings. And if you looked at their microbiomes, you found that over time, you know, they're sort of maintaining a, a microbiome that sort of looks like a younger microbiome, but it's sort of losing diversity and changing slowly. And then it sort of collapses right before death, right? So as you get really, really sick and die, you see sort of a collapse of the classic structure of the microbiome. However, there were other studies looking at centenarians, these older people who live past 100, where they're changing. Their, their microbiomes are actually constantly adapting with age. Um, and it looks like what's going on is that the core 
bugs, the core microbes that tend to dominate our guts when we're young, they're sort of losing uh, dominance. They're, 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 they're lowering in prevalence. And all these other microbes that actually make us more unique, right? They're, they tend not to be shared as much across individuals. These subdominant taxa are rising in prevalence with age. And this is a clear signal, signal that's been seen across many populations of centenarians in Japan and Greece and other, other parts of the world. Um, and so with our data set, we had sort of the ability to partition people based on their health state, these older individuals. And so we thought that perhaps what's going on is there's different signatures of aging here. Uh, one associated with less healthy and the other associated with maybe healthier people, assuming that centenarians are, are healthier than your average older person, which is probably a decent assumption. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's what we saw. So <clears throat> we found that people who were aging in this kind of healthy population we had access to, we, we found that the abundance of these core taxa, specifically, specifically this genus Bacteroides that I mentioned earlier, it's declining steadily as you get older and older and older. And these subdominant taxa are increasing. <clears throat> we calculated a score to kind of quantify this. So we called it uniqueness. And what it is is like how, it's, it's just a score of how close are you to your nearest neighbor in the population? How ecologically distinct is your microbiome? And that score is rising with age, right? It, it goes hand in hand with the decline in core taxa. You get a rise in this uniqueness score. So then we took this other data set we had access to. It was called um, Mr. Oss. It was a cohort of older men, about a thousand of them, who were being studied uh, to look at osteoporosis in men, which is, I guess, an understudied phenomenon. But they had microbiome data and health data on these men. And when we looked at this uniqueness score with age, there was um, a kind of a dampened association. We saw less of an association of this uniqueness increasing with age. So we thought, okay, what if we just partition these people by their health status? So we had a few ways of quantifying their health. One was walking speed. So if you walk faster as an older person, you're, you're, you're healthier. This is a well-validated metric. Um, another was drug use. So people who are on a lot of prescription drugs versus on not that many at all, that's another way to partition. And then a couple of other ways of doing it. And so when, when, however we looked at it, no matter how we partition people on their health status, Healthy old people showed a really strong association between this uniqueness score and age. They're, they're, it's increasing as they get older. But people who were not as healthy, it was a flat line. So they didn't show any of this drift. Their, their microbiomes were staying kind of static as they got older. And so help, help me understand this then. So, so what, what you're saying is, is um, Going back to, 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 to going throughout your life, we do see now a correlation between a certain category of, let's say, in inverted commas, beneficial bacteria. And if they stay relatively dominant, they can keep the bad inflammatory bacteria at bay. I know I'm talking like very broad strokes here, but so that if that carries through your life, you're like we said, between the urban microbiomes and the rural microbiomes, um, uh, 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 a sturdy good commensal bacteria microbiome keeps you in relatively good stead. But what you're saying is then as you grow older, it's not these big sturdy microbes. There are these new, more unique microbes that come in that may play some kind of role in keeping you healthy as you get into latter years. And are you saying that that commensal bacteria what become less 
important? It's it's curious, right? It's it's actually counterintuitive this this signature we're seeing. So yeah, like an 80-year-old person's microbiome who's healthy looks very different from a 20-year-old. You would think that a 20-year-old is is like a a, a health a healthy person, right? Like the, and their microbiome yeah. should so be like that like that idea of, you know, uh, you know, uh, transfusing a child's blood into a, you know, you would think that, right? Like, I'll just get a transplant from a 20-year-old and then my microbiome is going to be where I want it to be. And a lot of the field thinks that way, right? A lot of the microbiome aging field thinks that we should fecal transplant 20-year-olds' microbiomes into 80-year-olds. And, and actually, yeah. we're saying, no, 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 hold your horses. Like, let's not do that. That actually could maybe do more harm than good. Because when we look at health status, we find that the least healthy people look more like 20 year olds when they're older. Um, and, and so why and is that? That, that? That's, that's, that's what we sort of tried to dig into. So, um, what one thing we found <clears throat> is that if you look in the bloodstream, there are certain metabolites in the blood associated with this uniqueness score and they tend to be, um, protein fermentation byproducts. So the microbes are fermenting amino acids into these compounds that are getting absorbed and going into the blood. One is phenylacetylglutamine. It's a derivative of phenylalanine. And um, it, it's if you look it up, it's a patented biomarker of being a centenarian. It's just really highly enriched in the blood of centenarians and in their children. So it's not just a marker of having achieved old age. It's a marker of the likelihood of probably having a lifestyle or a genetic background that, that helps you achieve old age. Um, but it's also weird because that particular, a lot of these metabolites, a lot of these protein fermentation byproducts like P-creosol or phenacetylglutamine, they're actually toxic toxins, right? They're, they're not good for your organs. They can actually do damage to your kidneys and your liver. So there's like some bad guys there, but there's also some good guys. So we see indoles, which are fermentation byproducts of tryptophan, and um, these actually have been tested in, in animal models for, for their effects on aging. So if you feed mice indole, you can extend their lifespan and their health span. So indoles seem to lower inflammation in the gut and generally be good for you as you age. So these things are increasing as, as we get older in conjunction with this loss of core taxa. Many of these molecules are produced by some of these subdominant organisms that are increasing. And, um, you know, if, broadly speaking, if you group these subdominant taxa into categories, they tend to be um, firmicutes or clostridia, these, um, this other branch of, of gram-negative organisms apart from the, the bacteroides that I mentioned before, and acromantia, which is a mucus-degrading bug. And so these organisms seem to maintain their dominance or increase in prevalence uh, in these healthily aging people with more unique microbiomes. So there's this blood metabolomic signature. That's interesting. And then secondarily, um, if you look at these core bugs like Bacteroides that are declining in abundance, many of these organisms are, um, they're able to eat two groups of things. Uh, generally, they like to eat dietary fiber. So when you eat plants, they like to degrade that fiber, but they also can switch to eating mucus. They can eat us. And so if we're eating less fiber, they actually can degrade our own mucus layer. And we know that appetite declines with age, that people tend to eat a little bit less. Um, and we also know that in older people, the uh, stem cells that give rise to these cells called goblet cells, which are mucus-producing cells in the gut, they, they start to slow down. 
And so we produce fewer of these goblet cells and we make less mucus as we get older. So our mucus layer starts to thin. If it gets too thin, suddenly our immune system goes crazy and inflammation gets jacked up and we start to have a kind of antagonistic response to our microbiomes. And so what we think maybe is happening is that as the body develops, as, as the colon develops into older age and the mucus layer starts to thin, you know, having a, a lower dominance of these putatively mucus degrading organisms uh, may actually kind of prevent this, this increase in inflammation that could occur and, and exacerbate aging. And if thinner, if a thinning mucus layer is, uh, it, you know, has a propensity to kind of drive inflammation in kind of older people, how simple is it through supplementation to be able to protect that mucus layer? Or is it far more complicated than that? The best way to protect it is just to eat more dietary fiber. So if you, right. you know, older people who, who drink Metamucil are probably protected more from, from this phenomenon. Interesting. Um, Sean, uh, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show. It's great to chat. I really hope that we get to do this in person. Maybe in America one day we can come and, 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 and have a conversation about some of the trials that you're working on at, at that point as well. But, but thank you so much for coming on the show. 